So Matthew chapter 20 from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you'll indeed drink from my cup, but to sit, to my, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant, and the two brothers, and with the two brothers, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, as we come to your word and as we come to think about your world, Lord, we ask that you give us eyes to see Jesus. Lord, help us to see uh, him for who he is. Uh, help us to see what your plan for fixing our world is in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, how would you fix the world is the question that we're asking at the moment. By far the most common answer to that question as we asked people how they would fix the world, the most common answer was that they would fix the world by fixing people. Uh, and if you were here last week, you would have. Uh, we, we went through that and we saw what the Bible has to say about that. We saw that Jesus agreed that the problem with the world is people, the problem is us, but that, uh, that only Jesus can do the fixing that needs to be done uh, to us. The second most common response to the question, how would you fix the world, was that people would fix the world by fixing politics. So people said things like, politicians need to grow up. Politicians need to be paid less. Not sure how pay, paying them less fixes them. Uh, Australia needs to engage with the world more on the diplomatic front. We need free trade or less free trade. We need better people in government. We need a new prime minister. America and Russia and Israel need to act more sensibly. In other words, people thought that fixing politics would help fix the world. There's no denying, I think, that our political system to a large degree is 
pretty embarrassing. Uh, if you go and sit in on uh, the parliament, if you go and sit on particularly in parliamentary question time, it's not a, it's not a very glamorous affair. And it actually portrays our leaders in a pretty poor light. Our political system is embarrassing, it's increasingly divided, it increasingly appeals to the lowest common denominator and it is increasingly ineffective, it seems. In the last few years, too, our political system has shown unseen, previously unseen volatility. We've seen governments being thrown out after one term. That had almost never happened in the history of our political system until recently. We've seen other governments almost being thrown out and being driven to minority government. We've seen the challenges that can arise from that. We've seen unparalleled swings from one side of politics to the other. We've seen rising disenchantment with the political process, rising numbers of informal votes and people not voting at all in elections. And the problem is not just our politicians here in Australia, the problem is politicians the world over. America has seen the same, same kind of rising disenchantment with the political process. So too has Europe. In Europe, protest parties have captured significant parts of the votes in many countries. And the problem is not just politicians. The problem is actually all kinds of governments and leaders and authorities. How do you fix politics? How do you fix government? How do you fix the authorities? Well, in Matthew 20, Jesus has something to say about that, about leadership and authorities and about what kind of authority it is that we really need. The section of uh, Matthew's biography of Jesus that we read begins with the mother of two of Jesus' disciples, Mrs Zebedee, making a grasp for power and prestige. She comes to Jesus and she asks for a favour. She says to him, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. To sit on the left or right uh, of someone was an ancient way of saying to have power. We still sort of have that expression, somebody's right-hand man. And to be someone's right-hand man means to be the most important, the most uh, esteemed, the most powerful assistant of that person. To be the right-hand man was to be the most powerful person after the king. And to be the left-hand man, if you like, was to be the second most powerful person after the king. So the mother of these two disciples wants her children to be the most important people after Jesus. They, she wants them to be important and powerful. When the other disciples hear about that, they're angry, they're indignant, because they want to be important and powerful too. And it's at that point that Jesus proceeds to give a lesson about the wrong style of leadership that our world displays versus his style of leadership. He says in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The problem with the Roman rulers of Jesus' day was that they lorded it over those under their care. They took advantage of them. They oppressed the people that they had responsibility for. They worked for their own advantage. Jesus says that's not good leadership or good government. 
Instead, the model of good government and good leadership is this. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus isn't saying there's no place for government or leadership or authority. He's talking to his disciples, disciples whom he had chosen to be the leaders of the church after he ascended into heaven. And Jesus is showing these future leaders what the style of their leadership ought to be. It ought to be leadership that serves people rather than leadership that takes advantage of people, rather than leadership that crushes people, rather than leadership that serves its own ends. In, the, in New South Wales over the past few years, the uh, state citizens have been watching the unfolding of a drama uh, at the Independent Commission Against Corruption's investigations into numerous Labor politicians. I don't know how many people down here follow that. Uh, I still read the Sydney Morning Herald, so <laughs> every day for a few years it's been in the front few pages. But there have been stories of politicians using their political power to earn themselves and their families and their friends vast sums of money, giving coal mining licences to different people or, uh, or, or kind of... Uh, signing off on developments for their friends and family and whoever else uh, they see fit. There have been investigations into rorts of uh, campaign finances, illegal donations being given to election candidates. And all for what purpose? For the purpose of people gaining power for themselves to get the job that they want and the power that they want, the influence that they want, the prestige that they want. More broadly, we've seen parliamentarians dragged through the courts. You only need to think of Craig Thompson and the affair that was dragged on for three years uh, during the, uh, the Gillard government a few years ago. He was uh, taken to court, dragged through the courts for using funds of union members for his own ends. Government and leadership ceases to be about serving and becomes about being served. But serving doesn't always mean giving people what they want. Politicians fight to give us what we want, but not because they think it'll be good for us, but because giving us what we want means they'll stay in power for longer. So even when our politicians do what we think they should do, they're doing it for their own ends, not ours. And because they do things for their own ends so that they can be re-elected and keep their job. They often spend more money than the country has to give and they avoid the hard reforms that actually might do us some good. But those problems aren't restricted to politics. You can see it in other areas as well, people taking advantage of their authority and their leadership. We see the police taking advantage sometimes of their authority in the US lately. There have been all these cases of racial discrimination by police forces around the country. Examples of police brutality. Examples of people being shot dead in appalling circumstances. And we might think too, not just of governments and police, but also of the companies that have huge impacts on our lives. Large businesses, those in charge of those businesses often shape their company direction to suit their stock portfolio that they'll get when they quit their job rather than 
shaping the direction of the company to suit their customers that they're seeking to serve. And neither is the problem restricted to secular authorities. The problem infiltrates the church. The question that the the disciples ask here is a power-hungry question. They wanted to be important and powerful people. And that desire did not stop in the church with Jesus' rebuke of these two disciples. Even before they'd begun, the future leaders that Jesus had handpicked had to be told not to take advantage of people under their care. In other words, we need better leaders, don't we? We need leaders who serve. Not every leader in our country or in our world is money-hungry or power-hungry or a dictator. But even our best leaders are flawed. And even our best leaders do that sometimes. Even our best leaders make mistakes. They make bad judgment calls. What we need is not just good leaders, good but flawed leaders. What we need is a perfect leader who always makes the right call, who always makes it for the right reasons, who always makes the hard calls when the hard calls need to be made. We need someone who has our best interests at heart rather than their own interests at heart. And it's into that need, it's into that deeply felt desire, I think, that Jesus steps. Jesus holds himself up as the example of perfect leadership. He says in verse 28 that his disciples should serve just as the Son of Man did, uh, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus holds himself up as the perfect example of leadership, one who served rather than being served. And while we might be tempted to doubt the credentials of Jesus, of a man who holds himself up as the example of perfect leadership, once we see where that leadership took him, once we see that that leadership took him to the cross, that his servant leadership took him to his own death, for the sake of those he was leading. Once we see that, all our doubts, I think, about the quality of Jesus' leadership fall away. To what extent was Jesus willing to go in serving those people who trust him? He was willing to die for them. What political leader has done that? In fact, Jesus went to the cross not only to serve those who trusted him and loved him. Jesus went to the cross for those people who were his enemies and those people who hated him. He went to the cross in order that even those who hated him might turn to him and have life. What leader does that? What leader stands on that political platform? People are right. We do need to fix politics at leaders and governments, but the solution lies not in better leaders, making, our be- making the leaders that we have better. The answer lies in finding a better leader, a perfect leader, and Jesus is that perfect leader. 
Well, we need better politicians. We need better leaders, leaders who serve rather than take advantage of those under their care. But Jesus goes on to say something else important about his leadership. He says in verse 28 of his own leadership, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not only to, uh, uh, to serve but more than that, he came to give his life as a ransom. In Jesus' day, in order for a slave to be freed from their slavery, a ransom had to be paid. So people could be taken into slavery by, uh, as a result of war or something like that. In order for that slave to be freed, a ransom had to be paid. And once that ransom was paid, then that slave was free. The Bible says that actually we are slaves. We're slaves to sin. That is, we're slaves to rebellion against God. The problem with the world, the Bible says, is that as human beings we've rejected God and because we've rejected God we're now alienated from God and under the judgment of God. But Jesus says here that he comes to pay the ransom price to set us free from that slavery and the price that he paid is his own life. On the cross he took the penalty of death and judgment that we deserved and he ransomed us from our slavery. So that if we trust in him, we can be free from condemnation of, the condemnation of sin and free from the power of sin in our own lives. You see, Jesus came not only to serve, he didn't just come to fix the political system, he came to do what no, what no government can do, he came to ransom us from the judgment of God, to ransom us from sin and death and misery and hell. When we asked people how they would fix the world, they told us that the reason that we need better leaders and better politicians is to fix things like international diplomacy uh, or to fix international trade relations or to fix conflicts in the world between Israel and Palestine or whoever it is. If you ask me what, what we need better political leaders for, I think my answer would be tax reform. I'm deeply and unnervingly passionate about the reform of our tax system and it's taking all my energy not to begin to talk about that now. Uh, keep going, Carl, keep going. I don't know what you would say if... if if you were to be asked, what, why do we need better political leaders? Why do we need better governments and better authorities? But notice that the answer that Jesus gives is none of those things. The supreme example of Jesus' leadership, the supreme need in Jesus' leadership is not tax reform or better trade agreements. It's not even world peace. The supreme need that Jesus meets is ransoming us to God from the penalty of sin and death and judgment and hell. Jesus does what no other political leader can do. He ransoms us back to God. Jesus came to serve and he came to serve us in the way that we need most. It might not be the way that we want the most, but it's the way that we most needed. 
He came to ransom us from sin and death and condemnation and bring us back to God. We do need better leaders. We need better politicians. We need a leader who doesn't lift them for themselves but who serves. We need a leader who can ransom us from death and, pa- and the power of sin and the, and the penalty of judgment. In the final part of this section uh, that we looked at this morning, we, enca- we encounter Jesus doing one more thing and demonstrating another uh, value of his leadership. We encounter Jesus healing two blind men. Now, you might wonder what that has to do uh, with Jesus' comments about the kind of leadership that he has, but these things are connected. As Jesus walks along, these two blind men call out to him, and the title they use to call out to him is deeply significant. They call out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, David was the great king, the great king in the Old Testament, and God had promised to David that one day David would have a son, a descendant, who would be the ultimate king, the ultimate king who'd restore the world, who'd put the world right. And so by calling Jesus the son of David, these two blind men were realising something, were acknowledging something, were testifying to something, that Jesus was that ultimate king, that promised king, that one that God had promised would put the world right. And notice what it is that they want from their king. Verse 33, we want our sight. They're blind. And they want to see again. Jesus is filled with compassion. And he touches their eyes and these two men receive their sight. And they get up and they follow Jesus. What these men wanted from their king was healing. They were blind and they wanted to see. It's a simple enough request, isn't it, in some ways? Simple to ask, very hard to do. But Jesus did it. He gave them back their sight. Jesus could do what no other man could do, what no other leader has ever done in the history of the world. He restored the sight of the blind. Jesus could do it because he was no ordinary man. He was the son of God, come into our world to save us. We have leaders who introduce great reforms, universal health care, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. We have governments who keep adding medical treatments to the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, treatments which help us. We have governments who commit to building new hospitals, governments that commit to ending Indigenous disadvantage, governments that commit to ending crime and announce new task forces on drugs. We look to our leaders to fix the world, but the truth is that the very thing that we need them to fix, they can't do. Not one of them can heal the sick and open the eyes of the blind or make the lame walk. Not one of them can turn back the power of death. What political leader has ever stood at a grave and said, Come out! And it's happened. 
But Jesus did that at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Politicians can do good things, but they can't fix the world. In his first year of office, Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. Hadn't really done anything yet, but everyone was so excited about the promise of his political leadership that they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize. And it's almost the end of his second term, and there's still no peace in the Middle East. When Kevin Rudd swept to power in 2007, many people saw him as a kind of a national political saviour. He promised lots of things, but he never promised to heal the sick or to open the eyes of the blind or to raise the dead. They're the things that we really need. We need someone to turn back the decay of our world and no one that we elect can do it. But Jesus can. Jesus can turn back the curse of sin. He can turn back the misery of our world. He can turn back death and disease. He showed it by healing the sight of these two men. He showed it by raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. He showed it most supremely by dying himself and rising from the dead three days later. He died to end the power of death and sin and he rose again to herald in a better world which he will bring to be when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the political leader who can do what we really need. Jesus is the king who can fix the world. So briefly then, how do we respond to Jesus? If Jesus is the king that we really need, how do we respond? We respond by accepting his authority, by accepting him as king. We share in his kingdom when he is our king. When we bow to him and say, Jesus, I'm not the king. I thought I was, but I'm not. You are. And you're not just a king who tells me what to do. You're a king so powerful that you save me and rescue me and fix the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we want to thank you for the many noble and diligent and earnest political leaders that you have given to us. Lord, we want to thank you for the many other wise people that you've put in positions of authority and positions of responsibility in our world. Lord, we thank you for them and we thank you for the many good things that they do uh, for us and on our behalf. Lord, thank you that they are not all as bad as they might be. But, Father, we acknowledge too that even our best leaders can't fix our world. Even our best leaders can't turn back the curse of sin. Even our best leaders can't heal us from our physical ailments or end death. But thank you, Lord, that Jesus can. Thank you that you sent Jesus, your only son, into our world to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we want to acknowledge that Jesus is the true king. 
And Father, we want to admit, uh, we want to commit to serving him rather than serving ourselves. Lord, we want to commit to serving him and following him because he is the king who can save us and rescue us from sin and death and the king who can reunite us with you, our heavenly father. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.